Woohoo! Welcome to the Summer Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Pumped. It's a Tuesday morning podcast session. We're both caffeinated, feeling good. The right now I'm looking out at the mountains and we cannot see them at all. On Friday, we had this deluge of smoke roll through uh-huh. and it's just kind of sat here since. Yeah, it looks very opaque outside. I'm reminded of the, the Jim Carrey movie, The Mask, where he's like, smoking, except it's said in a much uh, less joyous uh, manner right now because doesn't really mean great things for the future of the West and climate change and all that. That reference is totally lost on me. Yeah. I feel like if it had been a book reference, I'd be all there with you. But I'm like, I have no idea what you're even talking also, about Also, right this now. is where I'm a couple years older than Megan. And so there are some mid-90s references that <laughs> got to me and did not get to Megan. Megan's more of like the Degrassi generation. I'm more of like Saved by the Bell generation. Kind of is a big issue in our relationship sometimes. But I love, so I was on the treadmill this morning and I get a text message from you, which is a, a selfie video, which is rare coming from you. You never take selfies and send them to me. And it's just a video of you kind of like hyperventilating in a mask. I can see your deep belly breathing going on yeah. after doing hill strides. And you were committed to the cause. Yeah, so I wore a mask. Today. Of course, there's a no strip under the mask. because Does it, that cancel each other out? It probably does, to be 100% honest. Um, but it's an easy day. And so there's no, no harm in that. Uh, and masking up a little bit. And so I'm out there and all of a sudden, as I start to get to the finish and after I finish my home stretch, I'm like, I'm a little bit euphoric right now. And I was trying to think of what it was and it brought up holotropic breathing, which is this whole technique based in psychology and meditation uh, that involves breathing exercises to channel a much of the same psychedelic effect as something like LSD. So I don't know it very well, but I think I might've been doing some holotropic breathing out there on my run today. I think you're a little bit of a low oxygen state. <laughs> yeah. Well, you came downstairs to the treadmill and I was almost done my treadmill workout and you were just bringing this LSD energy. And I yeah. was kind of like, David, I need to focus. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting through this treadmill workout right now. We were now. on very different wavelengths because you know, I was off in the great beyond exploring uh, the magical mushroom rainbow through my mask running. <laughs> Meanwhile, Megan was on the treadmill contemplating the finite nature of life and uh, how you know existence on the treadmill might not be an existence worth living. Well, before the treadmill, I think it was yesterday, I yeah. complained to him like, David, life is passing by way too fast. Yeah. Like, I just need life to slow down right now. And I got off the treadmill and I was like, actually, David, I take that statement yeah, back. Yeah. I feel like I'm 120 years old right now. <laughs> that treadmill made me think a lot about existence. It's wild how that the happens. The treadmill is the gateway to immortality. Like Zeus and all the gods which <laughs> just actually were on the treadmill the whole time and thus eventually became deities. It's an amazing <laughs> mental exercise. Though. Yeah. So I feel like for the first 20 minutes, I'm just kind of like, ugh. I must get through this treadmill. <laughs> and then I start having these very deep thoughts on yeah. there. I'm like composing, like composing manuscripts in my head for all these like articles I have to write, thinking I'm doing math with treadmill numbers. It's like, it's it's a deeper brain state after 20 minutes and it's interesting. Maybe it's the ultimate cure to procrastination. I know if I ever have writer's block, I should just hop on the treadmill and see what happens. <laughs> it's because anything is better than being on the treadmill. So you, just writing a full paper would be like, well, at least I'm not on the treadmill. Getting like bamboo shoots stuck under your <laughs> fingernails. At least I'm not on the treadmill. Recently though, I tried to listen to an audiobook because yeah. I, I, people love listening to audiobooks by the exercise. So I tried Obama's Promised Land and I found I couldn't get my heart rate above 120 because yeah. I just was soothed by Obama's cadence of his reading. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And had zero endorphins when I got off the treadmill because I just was not focused on running at all and was so focused on Promised Land. <laughs> the dulcet times of a naive hope of change <laughs> and all those other things that have been dashed uh, in front of our eyes. Yeah, and I, I'm kind of the, I'm still on A Promised Land because I've been mentioning this on a number of podcasts. I've switched to other books and finished those and come back to A Promised Land. And so the it's because it's a little heavy at times. It's talking about a lot about politics. It can be a little dense, but it's an incredible Oh, it's so good. I love learning um, about it. But also it just introduces some cognitive dissonance. So the other night, it's like 9.30 PM and I'm in bed. Which is I'm, late for us. Yeah, I'm in bed, I'm reading. Megan had kind of drifted off a little bit. 
and I'm reading about extrajudicial torture under the Bush administration. So it's a little bit heavy. And meanwhile, Megan is just like stroking my shoulder. And I'm like, I cannot handle these contrasting messages right now. This is too much. Actually, that's a, that's a nice euphemism you use there, David, <laughs> stroking your shoulder. But yeah, you were you were in a little bit of a different mental place than I was. Actually, I've been reading fiction recently. I, yeah. I'm usually a nonfiction person. And something about disappearing into the world of fiction has been amazing. So if anyone has fiction re recommendations, reach out to me. I'm oh, looking yeah. for them right now. Yeah, I'm, send those I'm, our I'm way. loving it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, you're you've been so excited to get upstairs to read your book each night. You're like, I know, it turns as soon as it hits eight PM, I'm like, we must go upstairs. I have books waiting for me. <laughs> Addie is channeling some of that same uh, delightful energy too, Addie Dog, because we have given her wet food for the first time since she was a puppy. So we ran out of dog food the other day. And usually when we run out of dog food, we just wind up pouring whatever cereal we're eating yeah. into her bowl of food. And she she looks very excited about it. I'm not sure how nutritious that is for dogs, but we actually went to the grocery store and they, they were out of like the regular food we give her, which is kind of the cheap stuff yeah, at yeah. Safeway. Maybe we should rethink this principle. And we got her the Newman's own chicken and liver. It was 325 Per, per, can. per can. That's it's a lot. Organic as heck. Um, there was actually a really cheap uh, like pedigree one right next to it. And I'm like, look, we're going to live it up in style. Why do we work so hard unless we can get Addie occasionally, once every nine years, some organic uh, chicken food? Actually, I did the math on it. I was like, that would be $182 a month if we fed her like all of her meals with this organic chicken chicken and liver food. Okay, Addie, uh, your cancer rates are not worth $182 a month. Let's be 100% honest. Um, but that wet food has changed Addie's perspective on the world. Ever since that moment, she has been going cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs all the time. She has so much energy. She was actually a little bit lethargic before this. Yeah. I was kind of like, well, maybe this is a side effect of her turning nine in a few months. I don't know what it is. Or maybe we overtrained her we a little bit. Her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Her, our, my coaching had gone a little bit too on the aggressive side for her upcoming races, and I need to back off. Instead, she just needed big wet food energy this entire time. She has been so aggressive with love and very aggressive. So we actually we have a lot of like foxes and like all kinds of animals that traverse through our backyard. And so now when she goes out the back the, the back door to just like go frolic in the backyard, she goes out there with just like the energy <laughs> of bark, like just full on barking at 6 a.m. And we're like, Addie, let's please tone it down a little bit. I, I feel like if she could channel energy right now, it's like totally bossy from Kellis. Because <laughs> she's a boss. Um, yeah, I think that this is something we can all channel though. And that's the reason we're bringing it up is like this big wet food energy. If you're an athlete and you feel a little down, your runs aren't working out, something like that change something up fundamentally. So food is the place we like the most. I mean, we'll often write in people's log, I'll, like, I'll write pizza. And what I mean by that is not eat a couple slices of pizza. I'm like, eat a whole fucking pizza. I'm like, find a greasy food equivalent. Yeah, like, yeah. For people who are not vegetarians, like a burger or fries, that's like a great meal for this. Also too, I have athletes sometimes, like if they're comfortable taking ibuprofen and don't yeah. have a race coming up, sometimes this is a great time to take two ibuprofen and see if like reducing the inflammation can help. Yeah, actually, that's a great point. We didn't talk about that, but the low-lying inflammation that can... Um, um, set in in some people, particularly in heavy training cycles, I'll often write in logs. And this is not something I'll ever say publicly. So podcast listeners, this is a uh, <laughs> an exclusive, um, is take a couple of ibuprofen before bed, um, knowing only if it works for you. So for example, for me, if I take NSAID like ibuprofen or Aleve or anything like that, my stomach turns inside out and I uh, become like a zombie and it's horrible. So don't do it if you're me. Um, I actually if, need to have like child lock on the ibuprofen yeah. because even though that happens, you're still very tempted to take the ibuprofen. I'm like, David, don't you see, this is not going to be a good idea in your future. Yet your, your brain is like, I must take this now. Well, it makes me feel so good until my entire intestinal tract comes out of my stomach. <laughs> um, but before that, I feel wonderful on my runs. But I think the same goes too for like unplanned rest days. 
days. And so like, this is kind of the approach that we use when athletes are just feeling kind of lethargic, not feeling super energetic. That's what we go for. But I feel like in athletes logs now, I'm just going to have to have to label it as find your wit. Yeah. We can tell which athletes have listened to the podcast or not, because the ones who haven't listened are going to be very confused. Yeah. Experiment as, as much as you can. Actually, ice baths is something that Megan really likes for that. Putting I love your, ice baths. Putting your feet up, getting a massage, um, just mix it up. That big wet food, food energy is there. Um, and don't just keep pushing into the lethargy as something to uh, pursue. Speaking of big wet food energy, you <laughs> crushed it this weekend. I was so pumped for you. So I get very nervous. David raced this weekend, the Aspen Backcountry Marathon. I get more nervous for your races than I do my own. I was sitting there at the finish line, just like doing math in my head. Like, he's coming in now. He's coming in now. He's coming in now. <laughs> and you crushed it. It was smoky out there. And you just had an incredible Did you have any idea if I was coming in? Like, did you hear anything from the course? Or was it totally? It was totally silent. Oh, you had no, no idea. No clue. Oh my gosh. I'm kind of like checking my texts with my phone. I'm like, did he text me with a broken ankle? Like, yeah, yeah. How's he feeling out there? Is he back at the house? I don't know. So this is exciting. This is one of my, this is my first big race actually in almost two years. Like the first race that was going to have competition would have cash prizes. All the things in Colorado that could attract like a bunch of people. Yeah, I've in Colorado, this. if there's a $20 cash prize, everyone and their mom is going to be heading yeah, out to yeah. that race. Yeah. And you get 500 bucks and like... You're lining up around the corner with pro runners. Um, so it was a it was a big moment for me. And I think I felt that a little bit on race morning because it's like five in the morning and I go to Megan and I'm like, Megan, do you have any deodorant? Because I am really smelly right now. And it was like, I was bringing so much odor. In fact, I smelled a lot like the wet food. I was bringing <laughs> the big wet food energy. That is for sure. Okay, normally when you tell me this, I'm like, David, you're exaggerating because you really actually don't smell in life. It's this wild thing. Like you could go five days without showering and not smell at all. <laughs> Meanwhile, if I go like a whole day without showering and don't wear deodorant, I walk into a room and someone's like, who died? Yeah. Like, we have very different smelling profiles. But I will say you were smelly that morning. Yeah. And I was pumped about that. I'm like, this is a good sign. Your testosterone so, is raging. So I turned to you and I'm like, David, you have smelly Duende. Go <laughs> go carry that power into the race. So if you remember our podcast last week, Duende is the passion uh, that we all aim to, to channel. And Megan just turns to me, looks me in the eye without any context, smelly Duende. <laughs> and she refuses to give me deodorant. And I actually thought that's a really good coaching strategy. So Megan is my coach. Um, and I was like, you know, Nike Oregon Project NOP. Um, is this famous thing, uh, training group that harnessed a lot of uh, illegal tactics, but perhaps the equivalent would be the BOP, the body <laughs> odor project, where you just send your athletes to the start line with so much body odor that no one will run near them. It's like, that's why no one went with me at the start. It was perfect. That's amazing. Actually, I did it on purpose. I knew full, full scale where the deodorant was. And I was like, nope, not giving it to you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that, that was true. I actually felt really great. Um, I want to thank Megan for her amazing coaching. It, it reminds me of an, another Olympic story. Um, so Ashley Kovacs is the coach of Joe Kovacs, who won the silver medal in the shot put. And when he was being interviewed, he's like, yeah, she got me really prepared. And I love that energy where it's like, uh, you know, this, my, my wife lifted me up in this context. So freaking well, I remember being at mile 22 and feeling so great and just reflecting in that moment that I'm like, damn, Megan, you're a really good coach. You're smart as fuck. I like this. Oh, thank you. Well, it's, it's actually, you're my favorite athlete to coach. And I can say that I'm, I'm very, <laughs> very biased, but I think your training log is actually really beautiful because you harbor the sense of consistency in training, but you don't have compulsive consistency. And it's this, I, it's kind of like the dream athlete scenario to coach is because you're like, you're so on it and so on top of it, but it doesn't come from like a place of compulsion. And I'm just like really grateful for that. Well, it took a lot of learning. It took a lot of help from you. I mean, um, so when I was at mile 22 and I was running uphill, I thought of a few things. And so we're gonna have a couple takeaways that you might be able to apply to not just your races, your long runs, any activity you're doing. Um, one is after our mountain runs, 
whimpering while doing my mountain legs, my single leg step ups back at the car after each of them. And every single time being like, I don't have to do this, but I'm showing up anyway um, for these this little exercise that just takes a minute, but is perhaps the most painful thing I do each week. Well, it's funny because we'll finish mountain runs and you're often like, okay, it's time to do my mountain yeah. legs. And oftentimes, you know, you look for a step or a stair or somewhere to do those mountain legs. And oftentimes it's not there. And so what you do is you do it on the the car, what would you call it? Like the car riser? The step, like the thing that gets you into the front seat, like yeah, whatever, so, just so the baseline. So you, you stand on that and then put your, your um, arm up and grasp like the top of the car and do the mountain legs in that way. And so usually I'm just like sitting in the car, like totally on my phone, yeah. decompressing from the run. And the car is doing this like hydraulics, it's like straight <laughs> bouncing as a result of your mountain legs. It looks like I'm doing a very odd sexual position with the Subaru, uh, which honestly might actually be the sexual position of Colorado, the official state sponsored sexual position. Um, the other thing I was thinking of is doing some treadmill runs and doing some uphill runs on the treadmill, none of which seem that fun when you're first doing them, as Megan has been describing, usually just 20 or 30 minutes in the afternoon. We've written about this and talked about this in the podcast. And every single time I'm like, this sucks, but this is how you earn it, you know, and that my coach put this on the plan for a reason and I'm going to step up and do this shit. So I want to thank you for that because like, you know, every time you give me that leeway or that that belief in in me that I don't necessarily have in myself, I always think of that, whether it's on a workout or that. It's like, well, if Megan thinks I can do this, then I can do this. <laughs> when, really when, when the trail gets really steep, I often find my own self queuing into those treadmill hill doubles and they, they do make a big difference. The other thing I was super proud of you about though was for fueling. Like you are naturally a pretty terrible fueler. Like when we first started dating, yeah. you would do like three hour long runs without fueling. And I was like, David, what are you doing? Fueling makes things well, way more delightful. It's way is, more fun. You recover much better. I read all those like blogs by Anton Kropitschka and Killian Jornet that they would just go out with like a thimble full of water and like a few chickpeas and run. And like sandals probably. Yeah, and run yeah. eight, eight hours or something. And I said, well, that must be how you're successful. Um, and then of course I got very science driven over time and learned that uh, failure to fuel is perhaps the biggest uh, thing that leads athletes to think that their endurance is less than it is. So in this race, I focused on having 300 to 400 calories per hour, a gel every 20 minutes plus sports drink. Um, I was taking electrolyte caps. So we love the Google electrolyte caps. It really added up. Um, taking in my fluid, uh, it was just, I was really throwing fuel in the fire. And I think it's kind of, for me at least, the why I always have thought I didn't have endurance is because I was not actually fueling my activity nearly enough. I think my proudest moment as a coach was when I went and give you, I give you a hug and a giant smooch post race, yeah. which is like my favorite thing to do. <laughs> also, I had Addie, I was wrangling Addie and she was on a, a, a leash that I made out of pants because I didn't have a leash. Yeah. So there was like a lot of chaos going on in this moment, but I gave you a hug and a smooch and I leaned up against your fanny pack and it was empty. And I got <laughs> pumped because that meant you took, you had nine gels with you and you took all of them. And I just was really proud of how far you've come on that fueling progression yeah. and it's fitting that it, co it corresponded with such an incredible race is that your gel are you just happy to see me <laughs> <laughs> when it's full at least um but actually one other thing and perhaps the thing i'm most proud of of all in training is that i didn't do a lot of those doubles that megan had prescribed as well or that were optional um in the past i think i have focused so much on making sure i don't have any excuses that sometimes i don't actually listen to how i feel and so there were so many times i mean i probably only did one third of my doubles in that entire build and I feel better than ever. My endurance is much better than ever, even though my volume has been relatively lower than I've ever done in the last six years. So thank you for that. And thank you for the courage to know the difference between 
being tough and being like self-destructive. And I think that actually that statement gets the idea that I made earlier about the consistency versus the compulsive consistency. Yeah. And that's what I've loved, like seeing an evolution in your training. I actually think to me, it's a red flag. If athletes do 100% of optional PM doubles, <laughs> yeah. it's actually a red flag. And I start reducing them because yeah. I'm like, you know, I, I, at some level, like life stress must get in. And at <laughs> yeah. some level, this is probably interfering. That's with really interesting. I guess I do that too. Um, yeah. It reminds me, I've been saying to a lot of athletes recently that mental toughness has to come from a place of love like of, of love of yourself. And if it's not, then it's not actually mental toughness. You're probably for your personality taking the easy way out. So I think it's easier for me sometimes to do that thing, whatever that is. And even though that's not the loving decision. So for everyone, try to ground that decision about, are you going to do that little bit of extra in a place of love? Um, and sometimes it's, it's sometimes for me, it's mentally way tougher not to do it. Oh, and yeah. that's actually what I adapt to and become stronger to. And it's, it's an interesting, like delicate balance between like consistency and then also listening to the well, body. For too. me, that's where having the most badass coach in the game comes in. <laughs> um, so we also actually had on, on podcast housekeeping news, a hilarious moment happened last week, which is all okay. It's, it was, it's hilarious in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. So we really care about this podcast now. It's something, it's probably our favorite creative thing we do each day. We invest a ton of time into other things. So it gives you a context for how much we care. And we got a text from someone that your podcast dropped from near the top of the charts to 207th. And I was like, what just happened? So it turns out that there was a podcast duplicate that kind of spontaneously formed on the internet. So there were two of them. And the one that like, I guess no one has ever seen and had no ratings or whatever became the predominant one in all the, all the rankings or anything. It was just causing everything to crater and our other podcast was going to get taken off because it was, they sensed it was a duplicate. It was like one of those moments like, Oh my God, technology. It's, what is happening? Yeah. Also no shame in being 207th. It just, oh, yeah. yeah, it was a rapid plummet from where we had been. Why do you think, do you have any conspiracy theories on why that happened? I feel like this would be a great way. Like if you're a competitor in the podcast business, just like <laughs> yeah. create a duplicate of someone else's podcast and actually, mess with them. It's actually a great point. I try not to think about it too much. I think about that all the time with like Google drive, you know? So if, if we use Google drive for a lot of different things, if Google drive goes down, like, our, our working lives might partially be over. And I, ex I expressed that once to someone that works at a big tech company. It's like, David, if Google Drive went down, all of the Western economy would collapse instantaneously, which made me feel a little better. Actually, I think there was a moment for 12 hours, like a year ago, where yeah. Google Drive did go down and we were all in a frenzy that day. Like, what are we going to do? Are we even going to be able to work today? Yeah. It's a disaster. So, actually, Megan was great. So I have, I have, as I've talked before, worst case scenario thinking. So I was like, well, I guess the podcast, we're just building it up from scratch all over again. Here we go. And she's like, David, this is okay. Just zoom out. In a week, it'll be fine. Go email people, blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> Megan coached me through my existential crisis. I actually hit the send button on the email that you crafted to Apple because you're like, I can't be responsible for this. And I'm like, send. <laughs> yeah. So at Apple, if you're if you're listening, thank you for your help. A big shout out to that multinational conglomerate and perhaps they'll give us a sponsorship too. We have now gotten it resolved. It feels great. Uh, we hit the send button. Life is good. Yeah. Uh, so we're... we're climbing back up those charts that don't matter at all, uh, but perhaps our way of pushing back against the uncertainty of mortality. Um, so speaking of, I uh, wanted to mention a quote that was in an athlete's log um, from a sermon uh, that started a wedding um, that this athlete attended. Here's the quote, and it's from Hunter S. Thompson. The quote is, you won't find reasonable men on the tops of tall mountains. I love this quote. Yeah, it's incredible. I, it. I actually didn't even validate whether that's Hunter S. Thompson or if that's the actual quote. I just love it. It's perfect no matter who it is, even if it's just the athlete. Um, so you won't find reasonable men on the tops of tall mountains. And I, I want everyone to think about that just a little bit because like, you know, what we talked about last week with the, the lobsters pulling everyone back down into the into the cage. And I gave you endless crap for that <laughs> yeah. analogy. I was like, David, you must explain this. <laughs> but the point being, like, exceptional things are not the norm for a reason, is that it takes so many of those 
decisions over and over again that might not be perfectly reasonable in like a 50-50 like weight of the evidence, um, you know, analysis. And I think the thing about those decisions, not feeling reasonable or feeling like you're crazy or like yeah. you're battling all this inertia to get to the top of the mountain is that oftentimes people are telling you that too yeah. in the process. And so you're actively facing people who are like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Is this even reasonable? And it takes this sense of like, I don't know, just swag and life confidence in enable in, in order to overcome that. And I mean, even in your own head, sometimes you have to rationalize it with yourself. So people all the time email about starting about in coaching. And I think back to starting coaching as like, I had a defense mechanism put up for four years where I was like, well, this is just a thing. This isn't like the only thing. This, this is my side hustle. This isn't everything, even though it kind of had turned into everything, but I was too scared to make the unreasonable choice from law to coaching. And so that's why we're mentioning it is like for everyone out there that's scared of making that unreasonable choice, make the unreasonable choice. Um, and you know, we actually were looking up some examples. I was like Googling around for some of my favorite stories, um, that involve people doing this and, you know, facing those like risky consequences. One of my favorite stories comes from Sylvester Stallone who wrote Rocky and he wrote the script. He had only $106 to his name and he wound up turning down $300,000 for the script because he wanted to be the star. Yeah. And in that time, $300,000 was a metric crap. Yeah. Money. Can you imagine how much self-belief that takes in the process? Uh, yeah. And my thing with that story is that, I mean, being a writer of a movie that's getting greenlit by Hollywood is really great. But for some reason, he understood that about himself, that it's worth like putting yourself out there. Actually, he had pitched um, Rocky to every company before even getting to this point. So like, he had to go from place to place to place. And actually reminds me of Ted Lasso, which had to do the same thing. They got rejected by every single streaming service before they became the top show in the entire world. I imagine who is looking back on that like, oh, damn. <laughs> yeah. But I love this quote from Sylvester Stallone. He said, so this is one of those things when you just roll the dice and fly by the proverbial seat of your pants and you just say, I've got to try it. I've just got to do it. I may be totally wrong and I'm going to take a lot of people down with me, but I just believe in it. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's so beautiful. Also, I really struggle in the concept of like taking people down with yeah. me. Like I'm pretty good at rolling the dice and like shooting my shot when it's just me alone. When it's me plus like people that I'm like supporting or people that I'm helping out or people that are believing or investing in me, that's when it becomes yeah. a lot harder for me to rationalize. <laughs> a little bit of that quote is like a little sociopathic when you're saying no matter how many I take down with me, it's like, well, wait, that just a little bit, but that is the ultimate inertia for me too is like well if i screw this up i'm not just screwing this up for me i'm screwing this up for multiple people and the point is like usually when you talk to those people like so i talk to megan and megan's like fucking go for it with coaching that's what you need to do and it's like oh actually the people that i think i'm gonna let down want me to take this chance too um when they actually know how i'm feeling about it the problem is we hold all these feelings deep inside like i would wake up you know dreading my trip to Louisiana, even though I loved my law work and Megan saw that and understood where I was coming from on that, like, and, and how, you know, we all can be that supportive person for someone else. I think another amazing example of this too is Tim Westergren, who he founded Pandora. He was rejected more than 300 times wow. by VCs. That is, I've heard a lot of these like success stories from entrepreneurs of I've been rejected by so-and-so many yeah. times. That's actually like one of the highest um, that I've seen. And he wound up getting the investment on his 348th pitch, which is remarkable. 348 Can pitches. you imagine doing 348 pitches? I imagine he knew that pitch to the T. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually a great way to get over performance anxiety. I really hope by the 348th pitch, he had zero performance anxiety. <laughs> Anxiety. Yeah, my vocal cords are like chafing just thinking about that. That's that's so brutal. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think that 
that type of story also a little bit sociopathic or psychotic to a certain extent. It's like, what gets you to the 348th pitch? You must really believe in yourself or your technology or something. Okay. Also, can we take like a slight, slight swerve for a moment? So I was doing research on Tim Westergren this morning and I found that he created the music genome project. And I saw that and I was yeah. like, how have I not heard of this sooner? This is one of the coolest things I don't know I anything about that. So what is that? Yeah, okay. I haven't, so we the, haven't heard that yet. So the music genome project, and I'm, I'm big on genetics. And so I saw this and yeah. I was like, my mind was blown. So essentially um, each song has approximately 450 what they call genes associated with it which are characteristics yeah. of that song so it could be like this is a male versus a female voice this is like you know what is the characteristic of this beat um and then they use like attributes of the songs to create this like inter interactive map and link songs together and that's yeah. actually what's used as the base of pandora to provide personalized recommendations is this mu music genome project and my mind was blown <laughs> i spent like 20 or 30 minutes this today reading about the well, music genome project i logged into pandora for the first time since like right when we met like 2010 or something today and it all of a sudden started playing twangy country music and i'm like fuck this doesn't know shit <laughs> i have i have space to change i'm totally a different man now we're gonna have to crisper your music genome project uh actually it's funny because crisper is gene editing and i'm like mashups you're just like you're just crispering music i think that's i think it's so cool um, um but yeah i mean i think one thing that you pointed out as soon i had these two examples down and megan was like yeah, let's talk about the safety net, though. Uh, yeah, so, what I think is really interesting. So Westergren and Sylvester Sloan both had, I, I researched kind of like their family life and their upbringings. They both had pretty big safety nets. Yeah. And I think I actually took a class this year, um, and it's called Healthcare Venture Capital. It was like the last class I took ever, which was amazing. <laughs> and was, wait, wait, ever as of now? As of now, yeah, there's an asterisk <laughs> next to that. What other degrees can you possibly get? <laughs> Total asterisk next to that. But I think like you look at Tim Westergren and he pitched to more than 300 VCs. Yeah. And it's like, he probably has this like massive network and also this massive safety net to allow him to make these decisions. And a lot of times that's associated with like being white, being male. And I think it's really important that we help like systemically help people establish their own safety nets so that they can go out and make these leaps. I just think it's really interesting. Well, I remember reading that paper, uh, your, which was, Amazing. Yeah, I wrote a paper. So I had a 12 page paper due for the final project of this yeah. healthcare venture capital class. And I wrote it all in one day, which was the last day. It was a good way to go out on my academic career because I feel <laughs> like if that keeps happening, I have like a, a, a very steep slope of how much time I left to do assignments. That slope was going in a bad direction yeah. for academics. Your ability to push things to the very end because it turned, it was brilliant. And you dropped hot fire over and over and over. You were proposing these systemic changes. And I'm like, Damn, Megan, this is what it's about. Um, but like zooming into athletics a little bit, I think we can all be that type of person. And, you know, while the maybe systemic issues with society are huge and, and something we can all make a little difference on, with athletics, we can make a huge difference. And it's why we focus so much on like inclusion and lifting others up as much as we possibly can, because gosh, all it takes is knowing that you can fail to accomplish what you're actually capable of and to make these unreasonable choices that might leave you on the top of a mountain or whatever your personal mountain is. And yeah, so just like tell someone they're fucking awesome, not because like that's an objective status that someone earns by getting 99 points on the awesome scale, just because they are themselves and that's fucking great. And I think it goes beyond knowing too. I think it actually goes to like providing the actual support because like what happens if you, you know, if someone comes to you and is like, you know, you have this great idea and they're going to give you $500 for yeah. it and you have a family of four to feed, that decision becomes much different, sure. you know, than if you're like a single person that's just like relying on yourself. And I feel like it's about actually providing like physical like safety nets for those people too, not just like the mental support as well. Definitely. And it's all a mixed bag too, because we highlight these two success stories. It's like maybe the other people that are pitching 360 times are like 
actively harming others. Like think about Elizabeth Holmes. And I Thanos. was just going to bring up that example. Yeah. Like she, I mean, I think there's a line of like believing in yourself and having this life swag. And then you take that too far and yeah. it borders on delusional. Yeah. I mean, she was like straight delusional with Theranos and it cost her. I mean, is she in jail right now? Uh, she's in court, I believe. I believe they're about to do the criminal trial. I'm not exactly sure. But I, know, I, should, I should be following that closely. I wonder if they're going to give her like a, a jail, uh, you know, turtleneck with like white and black stripes on it. <laughs> That's amazing. What's interesting though, actually, is that so Theranos office is in Palo Alto and Stanford wound up buying the Theranos office like to use as a building. Yeah. And the Department of Epidemiology has moved into the Theranos office. And so I, right now I haven't been back to Stanford because of COVID um, in a little bit, but I'll have a desk at the old Theranos building, which is wild to think about. I don't really like the vibes there. I don't know how I feel about you having a desk in that office. Well, I wonder if Stanford like purposely moved epidemiology department into that building because the epidemiology department is is like founded on like the rigor of like yeah. scientific research and it's so ironic that 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 department is moving into You're the essentially like building the ghostbusters of all the like <laughs> the ghosts of uh lies past that have come it's like we're just going to tell the truth so much that these slimers of lies are going to be going away um but i i, I mean I think what is most significant here is how we actually invest in ourselves um because what really caused me to resonate with this quote is thinking about all of the sacrifices that do have to get made in making slightly unreasonable decisions. I think we talk about investments all the time. And I think like the most logical and the most important investment is, and probably the first one that should happen is yeah. the investment in yourself. Yeah. And I think that's actually the hardest investment. To make. Oh my God, it's so hard too, especially when you want to make people happy. I think both of us are defined by this, like, at least for me, wanting to make someone happy is kind of my like core setting. It's like my categorical imperative that is just formed at the base of my brain has nothing to do with the type of person I am or any choices I made. I mean, it was when I was a kid. And so it really hurts when I don't feel that way. And, and there's a great podcast question that we got. Um, so here it is. Your philosophy on weddings, et cetera, has always interested me. How do you say no graciously? I feel like I just want to be on an island for a year. I love the idea of being on an island for a year. <laughs> yeah. This is my soul sister. It's M who asked this question. And I think I think it's fascinating because like we've talked quite a bit in our household about the idea that like in order to get to that top of the mountain that we were just talking about, you have to make a lot of sacrifices in life. And oftentimes that makes things feel like unbalanced yeah. compared to like what a traditional life balance would look like. And I think sometimes like that's totally okay. I think it's it's really about like finding that line for your own life. But I think it's really interesting to think about that. Yeah, when you posted the Instagram about um, my race, which was awesome, um, the thing that was most meaningful to me that you said was like, people don't always see like the grind it might entail, you know, the 5am wake ups, the coaching, the like, sometimes like late sleep going to bed, which might mean 730 um, in our in our grandparent uh, structured lives. And to me, that was really meaningful, because it was being totally validated in some of the sacrifices that I have to make on a day to day basis that might not always be like, in the limelight, right? Like it's part of the process. It's like how the sausage gets made, but it's not the sausage. You do a really good job with that. And I think what's challenging is sometimes people have like a keyhole into the sacrifices and yeah. so they think they see it, but it's like, in reality, it's like a very, very small percentage of what you're actually going through. What I think I struggle with the most is that I think I've realized that like, because I'm doing so much, I actually added up my connection network the other day yeah. between like friends, family, athletes I coach. I have, I'm on like three different work teams. And so yeah. like put together like all of those colleagues and all of the different connections and mentorship like positions that I have. And it was a crap ton of yeah. people. It was so many people. And I did the math on that. And I'm like, I inherently am going to be letting someone down at all times. Yeah. And hopefully not in a major way, but in a way like I'm a perfectionist with that sort of thing. And I want everyone to feel like that I'm a hundred percent emotionally invested in them all the time. And the reality of that is that it's just just not possible. So how are you getting more comfortable with like letting people down? Because it's something I still struggle with, but I'm getting a little better at, I mean, things like weddings, like to answer the question, 
I just say no to every single wedding unless the bride and groom, like my presence is needed for their happiness to a certain extent, because it's like, that is just really tough on our, on our time. And so if it is, heck yes, I want to be there. If not, perhaps not. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear how you do it. I think for me, it's when I have kind of like a hierarchical relationship. So I have yeah. like, these, these are the people in my life that I really don't want to let down. And yeah. that includes all of the athletes I coach because like, that's like my most it's your family. Yeah. It's, it's, they're my family, you know, and, and it's really important to me. And then I think also just honesty. So like my inclination, like if say what I, I got a wedding invitation that yeah. like, it just was like in Tennessee, it was going to like cause this like big upending thing in life. Like my inclination would be to come up with some elaborate excuse. Like yeah. I'm racing in Peoria this weekend, <laughs> yeah. but like just being honest about like hey like I just really I'm overwhelmed with work right now like it's just not gonna work and just not trying to craft these elaborate excuses is there a race in Peoria let's go to Peoria so, I know Peoria probably has some sweet chore raisin <laughs> it does probably has some sweet corn too um but yeah I mean I think it gets back to the question of how to balance everything right like how to like when we talk about getting to the top of the mountains that this Hunter S. Thompson quote it's not actually about winning a race or achieving something or becoming even good at what you do it's just about you know the shooting your shot mentality and um, but I think it becomes inherently imbalanced by the very nature of making an unreasonable decision in the first place to try to get up some mountain, whatever that mountain is. And that's something I have really struggled with is like, okay, can I embrace being unbalanced and letting people down in the process? Well, I think you can find balance within that unbalance. So for me, like I kind of just have to follow my joy compass. Like for me, when I'm the textbook traditional life balanced of like our house is immaculately clean, like I'm on top of all the yeah. emails, like all this other stuff, I'm inherently creating sacrifices in that like drive that I have to do all of these different things. Yeah. And so that by itself is a sacrifice. And I think it's actually really interesting to think about it in that way. Yeah, I think the whoop ends up being a pretty good proxy for some of that stuff too, because you know, that whoop score, like once it's, it, you know, once you start trying to please everyone, it goes down and everything starts to suffer a little bit. Um, and when it's high, you're dropping a lot of balls with work. So there's not too much you can do about it. A hundred percent. So yeah. I actually had a reflection the other week. I was out on the bike. I woke up late that day. I probably woke up at 645, which to me is like really yeah. late because from five to 645 in the morning, I'm sending emails. And it's kind of just like the place where I start my day. And if I don't have that time, everything in my day becomes yeah. pushed back and goes to shit. But my, my recovery score was 97%. Which is through the roof. Which is very high. I've never seen anything A whoop like recovery score of 97% is awesome, but I was 97% late. And I was like, well, this is just the trade-off that I'm going <laughs> to have in life. Like I can't do everything. And I'm going to have to accept that. And I think like I've made the joke a lot recently that 97-97 is just kind of the way of life. Like I love that. something is awesome in one area and it's inherently going to fall in another. And just like being really delicate in that balance beam approach. I love it. So yeah, let's, let's just chase the tops of mountains and be okay with like you know, occasionally letting some people down in the process. Um, so yeah, we also wanted to highlight Molly Seidel, uh, who absolutely shocked the world, though I don't think she shocked people that actually knew, to win the, win the bronze medal at the Olympic Marathon for Women. Okay, total badass right here. I mean, talk about shooting your shot. She went out to the Olympics and just like stuck her nose in it and shot her shot. Yeah. She had this amazing quote. So she said, I stuck my nose where it didn't belong and I tried to make some people angry in terms of her overall race plan. Yeah. And what a great race plan coming from a professional <laughs> runner. It. And talk about like, you know, when you get to the top of the mountain, you sometimes like ruffle some feathers along the way. And um, I also love the video. She came across the finish line screaming, like is you could hear it on the uh, on the broadcast so loud and clear. Um, and also I saw through the grapevine that she turned down a number of interviews pre-Olympics, unlike some of the other people that were participating, which I think is really relevant because she was letting people down, uh, you know, to, to prioritize some things that were really meaningful for her. She talked a lot about the idea that she knew she had to focus on this and like what that meant for overall 
overall recovery. What I think is also interesting too is she's on Strava. Yeah. Not that many professional athletes are on Strava at her level because like you're kind of giving away all your training secrets. Yeah. You're giving away where you are in the moment. Alan Cousins went through and coded her training. Alan Cousins, also a remarkable human. He goes through and codes people's training on Strava and it's actually quite instructive. Yeah. He has an amazing Twitter. Yeah, he is such a great follow. I actually was reflecting that I agree with almost everything he says. Like I totally agree, which is really rare in, a, in something that's as contentious as training methodology. So big shout out to Alan Cousins. So he went through and examined her long runs and he found that on average, her long runs were spent at 67% of 5K pace. And so when you do the math on that, that's actually a much slower long run progression or much slower long run average pace than you would expect for someone of her of her caliber. And it just goes to show like she's building her base. She's keeping her long yeah. runs easy. I think to her that probably equates like a 730 um, average, I Something imagine, like, like looking at what her 5K pace would be. And for an athlete of her caliber, that's actually like a little bit slower for these long runs. And it's just so cool to see the and fact the that she's is, like treating her body well. She could go faster and still recover. Like it's not like she's at some threshold at that point. Like that's probably well below her aerobic threshold. And it's a reminder for all of us okay to back off just a little bit like you're not have you don't have to push to like this is the fastest i can go and still be ready for my run the next day it's like this is what i always think about is can i feel freaking great at the end of this run like at the end of this run without recovery could i go do it again like that's always how i want to evaluate my own personal training. and that doesn't have to overlap with super sexy strava profiles because yeah. i think sometimes like the inclination is like you know, you're being followed on strava you're like how can i make this super sexy and yeah. it's like actually sometimes slow is sexy yeah slow is sexy slow is sexy <laughs> as tenacious t said you don't always have to run her hard. <laughs> um, I'm not going to say the entire thing. Yeah. Sometimes I saw the look of fear in your yeah, eyes. Yeah, as you start, yeah. I'm like, what are you going to say? Yeah. I think that that song might be cancelable now. Like I, you know, like in terms of like gender dynamics and things. Um, but yeah, instead of Strava porn, you need like Strava sits on the couch and sips some chamomile tea. Ooh, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> that perhaps is a little more appropriate than what I was about to say. This was also Molly Seidel's only her third marathon. And she's like still learning in this process. And I'm really excited to see where her career goes from this. I remember before Atlanta. So Esther Atkins, who's an awesome runner. I actually ran with her a little bit. She was like a pro runner right yeah. as I was starting my college career. And we like overlapped in some races, just a great human. And she gave Molly Seidel advice about how to warm up at the Atlanta Olympic trials. And clearly it worked. Molly and followed it. Molly took it. Yeah. yeah. And clearly Esther Atkins is a great coach. Um, but, you know, obviously Molly's story is much more complex. Um, we want to celebrate her purely for this accomplishment, everything she's done. But for those out there listening that might not know, we also want to say, Struggle is part of the game. And Molly has been through so many struggles. And and she really, truly owns that. And I think that's one of the most like incredible parts of her journey. She said, when I was in the NCAA, it was obvious I was battling an eating disorder. It was so obvious that people would write on track and field message boards that I look sick. But nearly four years later, I got to have ownership over my story, not just some random person commenting on a message board. Once I did the podcast, a weight was lifted. I felt like, okay, I can finally talk about what happened. I'm in a healthier mental state. Now I feel like I'm ready to go and do this. And she's referring to the fact that she opened up on a podcast about all of this. And it was pretty transformative for her journey. Yeah. And owning her full story, which is so cool. I mean, I think for people in the public eye like her, it's especially difficult because I mean, I'm, I assume with running message board, she's talking about the cesspool that is Let's Run, you know, um, and basically any pro runner in the spotlight will have the worst things you could ever imagine written about them. Um, but even if not, like people are always tearing you down a little bit and the ownership of like everything that went into her that she didn't have to be this effortless perfection, per, you know, personified, she could just be Molly. And that's something that like, I find a lot of joy in too. It's that actually the flaws that we all have are beautiful too. 
And in some sense for her, this was kind of like a double-edged sword because the, the podcast was followed like a week after trial. She became framed as the once great runner who overcame an eating disorder. And like, I think to me, that's like a double-edged sword of people that are wanting to put this like one identity on her of overcoming. Like yeah. I think oftentimes when people have eating disorders, it is a continuous process. And like putting that label on someone is a lot. And also too, like she doesn't have to be defined by yeah. these struggles. And even through that process, she just created ownership of herself. She's like, yeah, I'm Molly. Even yeah. though you want to put this, this title to me, like I'm still Molly. Yeah. And when we talk about identity, we often talk about like jobs and things, right? Like you're a researcher and a coach and a runner and all those other things that go into that thing. But <laughs> all those things that go into that thing, really articulate there, David. Um, but what, what, I think is really special is all the flaws that go into Megan and David too. Like, you know, I, not only am I horrified to let people down, sometimes it turns me into a little bit of a prick because I don't even put myself out there for fear of letting someone down. And being present actively as you feel like you're embracing those flaws or embracing those struggles, I feel like it's something that's very challenging. And she's owned that and done that throughout the process. She said, they wanted this marathon in Olympics to be the new story, the next phase of Molly the Runner. But the reality is much messier. I will never overcome my eating disorder. I still struggle. I relapse and I actively deal with the ups and downs that come with chronic OCD, depression, and anxiety. It's not something that's a nice tidy bow, like the Olympic trials or even the Olympics can disguise. Today, I would not be the runner I am without my struggles. I would not be the person I am without my struggles. That is, I read that quote and just got total goosebumps everywhere because I mean, she's just being so vulnerable and acknowledging this as she's being pinned as this person who's overcome all these mental health issues. Yeah. The messy parts are the beautiful parts too. Um, speaking of uh, some old twangy country music, I'm reminded of God Bless the Broken Road. Uh, oh, Pandora is tuning you in. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. But the, the point being that the broken road is the road. Like every single road you ever see is fully fucking broken. Um, even if those stories aren't publicly told, even if they're not like Molly and, you know, came out on a podcast and talked about this, like something that coaching has showed us with athletes and something that we see in our own selves, in our own brokenness. And so, you know, if you're broken too, fuck yeah. Like that's beautiful and can be so uplifting to share it, to open up about it, to be okay with it because you're awesome the way you are. And I think instead of framing it as broken, so we talked in the, the Happy Runner, our book, about the idea of framing it as brain sparkles. And yeah. that's so much more sexy than being broken. Like, <laughs> yeah. why can't we call everything sparkles that we struggle with? Or yeah, was it Katsugi or something. So Zoe Rome on the DNF podcast was talking about how the art of Katsugi, I don't know the exact word for it, um, involved like um, ceramics that had been broken and then formed with some kind of like a sparkly- It's like uh, a gold glitter. A yeah. gold glitter. So maybe that's the perfect uh, mental health uh, journey right there is yes, we are all broken, but let's just put some gold glitter in those in those spaces and live it the fuck up. Love it. All right. Do you want to talk about running form? Let's talk this, about running this form. Top, this is topic one from A. Quick question about something I've noticed in the Olympics. Many of the top Kenyan runners have a significant lean forward from the waist. I've always heard a forward lean is best form, that it should be come from the angles and your chest should still be upright. Any thoughts on this? It's obviously working out great for runners with this form. So this brings us back to kind of how we direct some athletes on form. And so in 2014, I went to the mountain champs at Loon Mountain in New Hampshire. And there was a video from the top of one of the steep um, climbs there. And Megan watched this video and was like, David, you look like you're out for a mall jog <laughs> because I was just bouncing up and down so upright in my form. I had never really learned 
true mountain running style at that point because I hadn't, hadn't spent much time in Colorado. And that at that point, I was like, okay, I fundamentally need to alter something about how I climb because this is not the way to do it. I feel like we could have created a reel for that, similar to the reels that were created for the Olympic uh, equestrian events, like yeah. the horses that were just like prancing to all these pop songs. <laughs> that was exactly you. I was definitely... I was definitely prancing to Toxic by Britney Spears there. <laughs> um, so after that point, I actually focus very intently on a forward lean, um, just while climbing. It doesn't mean that it's like maybe even that particularly noticeable. It, try, it was trying to quiet my form and mimic the grade with which I was running. So if it was a shallow grade, I'd have a very slight forward lean. If it was a 15% grade, I'd think about leaning forward 15%, just as a mental cue that works for me. And it made a massive difference. You know, all of a sudden I went from thinking steep climbs were one of my weaknesses to thinking now this is one of my strengths. Every time I hit a steep climb in a race, I'm like, now is the time I can make up on everyone. Even people that are much better to senders than me or people that might have faster 5K PRs or anything like that. Like it's an opportunity. What I think is relevant on this discussion is sometimes on really steep uphills, what is actually upright feels like a forward lean. Yeah. And sometimes I think you actually really just need to hit the exaggerate button and go for it <laughs> because that's the best way to do it. For me, actually, this loops back to the treadmill discussion. Often Sometimes on treadmills, like once I get past that 20 minute yeah. mark of existential despair, I really think a lot about my form and it's fun to actually have a heart rate monitor on and practice the forward lean and see how that reduces my heart rate and my overall exertion. And it's pretty remarkable. I would say it's five beats per minute. Yeah. And I would love, actually, I was thinking about on the treadmill, there's a bar at the front of ours on the floor, on like at the top end of the treadmill and be... I should put like a laminated picture of you and Addie, like something that gives me incentive to keep looking forward, you know, um, because I think it would be really game changing for me. And treadmill actually has been super helpful. Um, and so the basic biomechanical principle here with running form in general is that you want to keep forward momentum going. What that looks like really depends on individual biomechanics and morphology. And so the difficulty there is you might be different than we are. Um, I think for both of us, we might be more naturally upright. So practicing a forward lean on uphills has been pretty instrumental. Um, on flats, I don't need to think about it nearly as much. I more just think about, okay, keep my center of gravity out in front, like keep my center of gravity moving forward, more of that lean from the ankles. But on climbs, I need to be like, <laughs> I'm basically looking at the ground. I, I kind of look like I'm, you know, have hemorrhoids and I'm searching for my keys <laughs> at the same time. But that has been really helpful. And so for the trail runners out there, while practicing the Kenyan forward lean that you might see in the marathon might be ill-advised that might cause low back pain. Uh, doing that on the climbs might be super duper helpful. And I think on the climbs too, it's it's forward lean, but it's also focusing on keeping things relaxed. Like yeah. I, I know for me, like when things are relaxed, it's much easier to have that forward lean. And then the prancy ponies that <laughs> we talk about all the time. I channel prancy pony. Like it's, I mean, I when, we're, when I'm doing workouts, you need to be out there just like with a sign that says prancy pony and just like, roll with it. <laughs> it. The first swap shirts, the first merch that we do for this podcast need to be Prancy fucking pony. Um, so, <laughs> do you want to do our next topic? Let's do it. This is, I am so glad we're covering this topic. So recently an article by Stacey Sims came out in um, BMJ Exercise Science Journal looking at HRV and the menstrual cycle. And I feel like this is just, Stacey Sims, obviously an incredible researcher, but this is just like launching the frontier of a lot more focus on female athletes and research and inclusion of female athletes and really pumped about this. And structure. I think this is really relevant even for people that don't menstruate because this gets back to how recovery works and how we think about training in the context of these really complex systems. Um, and actually a story from the Olympics. So when Molly Seidel went into the bronze, I think Saltpeter or something like that was in third at the time and she stopped and everyone's like, oh no, she got tired. Actually she came out after the race that she was having severe menstrual cramps at the time. It gets back to, you know, 
female athlete performance is complex and that complex leads to beauty and excitement and opportunity, but it's also something that we really need to understand. And I think there's a, a tendency of athletes not to want to talk about that complexity because it feels, I don't know, it just feels weird or like, like you're a, making excuse or something like that. But it's, I think it's actually very important. An empty space in the armor of an athlete. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you get me on that day, it's like right in the, in the open, open spot. Um, actually I want to, I insist on reading this. Uh, this is on my computer, not Megan's outline because it was really special. So we got an email, um, from a, from a listener that was this. I got my period back today after over a year of having nothing. And I feel like I needed to thank you for inspiring me to recover so that I can have longevity in the wonderful sport that is trail running. The way that Megan talks so openly about female physiology and running really pushed me to get the help I desperately needed. And I know I would be in a very different place right now if I hadn't come across her. I don't think I would have even felt comfortable telling anyone about it. The way that Megan is able to speak up about female health gave me that nudge. I needed to confide in them. Sorry about that reading reading mistake there. Today, we celebrated together over post trails cake and iced coffee. The best way, right? And that's listener E. I love this. Also, I love the fact that listener E celebrated this. Yeah. So whenever an athlete comes to me and tells me that they've gotten their period back, I go freaking bananas. Actually, <laughs> to the point where athletes are like, Megan, this is weird. Like, can yeah. you stop right now? But it's truly a cause for celebration. Megan is like one of those 1970s parents that like overcorrects when their daughter has their first match. She's like, oh my God, it's you're like, the greatest thing that's ever. Champagne. Yeah. Let's pop some bubbly. Let's do But no, this. it is that significant in someone's life. Like, fuck yes, E, this is the coolest thing ever. And Megan, thank you for opening up. And also anyone that, when we get these types of emails, we sit down and read them together. And sometimes we cry. Like this is the most meaningful thing in the world. And, you know, this process that you went under, E, and others that are out there, like with menstrual cycle and with the complications that come with as a female athlete, it's the most cool and beautiful thing ever. I wish we could create an anonymous Google Doc of some of the emails that we get. And because I feel like if people could read that, they would have a lot more faith in the world. Like yeah. our podcast listeners are just amazing and wonderful. So yeah, today we want to talk about menstrual cycle and HRV. And as I was mentioning, this is based off of the 2021 study that just came out in the BMJ Open Sport and Exercise Medicine. And what they did was they looked at, um, so they had WHOOP journal data. Um, and they had this from about 4,500 participants. And the criteria for, for these participant selection was they had to be on 25 to 35 day menstrual cycles or using hormonal contraceptives. And then they looked at the relationship between HRV recovery um, and resting heart rate and the, the phase of the menstrual yeah. cycle. And it, it's, I think it's actually something that's going to be really instructive for informing overall training approach. So this is a massive data set. Very cool. Like, you know, this will probably smooth over a lot of the variation in how the data is collected in the types of athletes that you receive and in perhaps some measurement errors that might happen along the way, particularly as it relates to strain and recovery and things like that. Also, kudos to WHOOP for providing this data. The fact that they have the menstrual cycle option and that so many women are choosing it is going to create these like new frontiers in research. And so, David, this is your time for the WHOOP podcast. I am, I am so ready to sell out yet again. So join.whoop.com slash swap. Enter offer code at checkout, SWAP swap for 15% off, something we really believe in. But we'd be talking about this study no matter what. Um, and it, what this study really gets into is how, when you're looking at um, you know, the, the phases of the menstrual cycle, you might see changes that then need to be reflected in how we approach training. And it's something we're thinking a lot about as coaches, and we have been for a few years. So I'm going to read the overall conclusion from the study. And then don't worry, there are some big words in here. We will break them down for you and kind of walk through what this means overall. It is known that estrogens act centrally to modulate the autonomic nervous system, increasing vagal and decreasing sympathetic activity, whereas progesterone appears to have an opposing effect, elevating central norepinephrine release, inducing a sympathetic drive. 
This, thus, due to unopposed estrogen in the early and mid-follicular phases, followed by the elevation of progesterone in the luteal phase, which antagonizes estrogenic effects, it is unsurprising to note this pattern of HRV and recovery in naturally cycling women. I think I actually just blacked out. <laughs> I'm coming to not understanding a fucking word of just what was said. Okay, also time out. So this is in the British Medical Journal. Um, and in, in Britain, they, they use estrogen and they spell it by putting an O before estrogen. Yeah, and it looks so like oestrogens. In my head, I'm reading this and I'm like, oestrogens. Yeah. Actually, it's pronounced estrogen. I found that earlier when I was I was doing research for this podcast. And so it's a little bit of a mind fuck when I'm reading. I like constantly want to say oestrogen. Very interesting. So let's break this down. So essentially, the follicular phase is the first part of the menstrual cycle. Yeah. That's classically defined as the lower hormone phase. Um, and Estrogen in this phase um, dominates over progesterone. The luteal phase is the last half of the menstrual cycle. You can remember F um, for follicular is first, L for luteal is last. There's an amazing mnemonic for it, so it must be right. I, I also love that Megan's done like 38 grades or something, and she's coming back to like the fourth grade, like lefty loosey righty tidy version of the menstrual cycle. It's amazing. It's so oh, it does work really well. So the follicular phase starts on day one with a period. What we classically think about is that athletes are having more PMS symptoms in this higher hormone phase in the luteal phase. So progesterone causes the sympathetic drive in the luteal phase. And that sympathetic drive is responsible for elevating the resting heart rate and decreasing HRV, making for a recovery score that is less than optimal in WHOOP. And that's actually really interesting because that corresponds to the time that athletes often have more PMS symptoms yeah. and feel a little bit, you know, just training is harder. Also in that time period to often respiratory rate elevates. Um, sometimes when I'm like running in the PMS phase, I kind of feel like I'm hyperventilating. Yeah. And so it was very interesting. Like I think intuitively this to me makes sense. This is what I would have predicted based off of like understanding the physiology and the hormones. And it was very cool to see Stacey Sims take this hormonal data and associate it with the WHOOP metrics of HRV, resting heart rate and respiratory rate. Yeah. So for women not taking birth control, um, HRV was higher, recovery rates were better um, early in the follicular phase, and then just kind of steadily uh, decreased throughout. That being said, the changes were not massive. And so it's not something it's like, oh, I need to overhaul everything and change how I do it. It's more, you just need to start thinking about how you feel a little bit. And birth control complicates it just slightly more. Um, so they were looking at two different types of birth control. One, which is combined birth control. Um, and I'm going to actually stop here because I'm not exactly <laughs> sure what combined birth I control saw the, is. I saw the fear in your eyes like any good man. It's combined. It's combined. Um, so they had 455 women on combined birth control, and that is the combination of estrogen and progestin. And then they had 269 on progestin-only birth control yeah. and actually found really interesting um, like results from that. So progestin only had less effect on overall recovery rates and less effect on variations in resting heart rate and HRV compared to the combined effects, um, the combined birth control effects. Um, but overall that athletes taking birth control had slightly greater decreases in the recovery score after cardiovascular strain. And so that's also something that is intuitive to me. Um, we've seen that in prior research that sometimes athletes who are on, um, combined birth control more so than progestin only birth control may have a little bit more impacted recovery. But again, this is very highly inter-individual yeah, and, and so many different things that go into these decisions. Also depends how you line it up. They were like lining up the start of the inactive pill week with the uh, early follicular phase, which might be harder to track for people that aren't as used to this sort of thing. Um, and it gets back to like, we get asked a lot about athletes like, oh, what do, what do elites do for birth control? Like what do elite pro athletes do for birth control? And the answer is a lot of different things and you can do a lot of different things to be successful. That being said, I think fewer are on the pill nowadays, it seems, than maybe localized like Mirena or other IUD or natural cycle or something like that. And that this could be part of why is that if there's a slightly worse response 
uh, you know, post cardiovascular strain, maybe it reduces recovery score in some athletes, but not everyone. I'm sure there've been tons of gold medals that were won on people taking the pill. And there's been other studies actually looking at the pill and the impacts of the pill on testosterone levels, which are often lower sex hormone binding globulin, which impacts the total testosterone levels the body sees, um, and DHEA. And there's also, there's perturbations in that as well. And so that's another frame of reference in which I tell athletes, yeah, maybe localized hormones are beneficial, but again, yeah. this is like a very individual decision. So let's talk training. Let's uh, talk training. Yeah. I was going to say, can we like, let's, that was a lot of detail. Let's back it out and talk about um, how this impacts You kind training. of lost me as soon as you said estrogens. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm out. Um, but no, no, this is incredibly important. Something we think about all the time. And we, um, constantly iterate, you know, these processes as we form athlete training processes on um, cycles. So how I break it down to athletes is that the luteal phase, which is the last phase, the higher hormone phase, that's more so dominated by progesterone is a great time to kind of think about doing aerobic rebuild weeks. If you feel like you're really impacted yeah. by PMS or impacted by some of these metrics that whoop is seeing, um, or even just to take a down week in general, some athletes may not even feel it. And that's yeah. a time that like, maybe you don't even have to modulate training. Again, this is just like so individual specific. And as the article found like sometimes we're talking about very very small variations so athletes who are not stress limited in training or yeah. like not you know overly impacted may not have to make any any modulations at all yeah so what we really try to do is just have the athlete tell us how they're feeling because this is one of many variables that go into how an athlete feels and so if you're not that affected i think it's you know there have been you know, hundreds of thousands of elite athletes that have not really altered training too much and been great. But at the same time, there may have been a lot of athletes selling themselves short that whole whole expanse of history. And so it's a great opportunity to find what works for you. What we'll generally have our athletes do, you can load up in the follicular phase, not even think about it too much in the luteal phase, start to listen to your body. Um, I might've pronounced that wrong. I'm like constantly walking on eggshells here with everything I'm saying. Um, but to be really aware and open that it's okay to have little openings in your armor um, at certain parts of your menstrual cycle. For some women, that could be ovulation where you feel bad or feel great or something in between. I love that you brought up ovulation. That was actually, look, you are on this. I'm, yes. I'm proud of you. Ovulation was my next my next conversation. Actually, some athletes, so during ovulation, you actually have a testosterone bump. And for a lot of athletes, that makes them feel turbocharged. Like, yes. yeah, it's time to go. I got this. And other athletes actually are heavily impacted by ovulation. And so that's an area that we just see a ton of inter-athlete individual. And other athletes during ovulation will... Uh, stroke their partner while they're reading Obama's <laughs> promised land. <laughs> that would be me. Um, but I think also too, when you look at strength and mobility, I often give athletes a little bit more mobility during the luteal phase um, and like heavier strength during the follicular phase. But again, this is just something that we've, we've been working with and it's so different uh, per athlete. Yeah. So listen to your body, um, be, be willing to change. Okay. We're going to get into the last topic, which is a PS and it's going to be very quick. And I think it's, it's always good to discuss, uh, mortality very quickly. <laughs> I love this question. It's from S. Last night, I was listening to my heartbeat as I got into bed and it kind of plunged me into a little panic attack about mortality, not feeling ready to die and feeling scared and sad because I don't ever even know what happens next. Anyway, how do you handle thoughts like that? What do you think happens next? Deep questions for the adventure log. Oh, I love this came through the event. This came through a training log. I love yeah, that. It came from one of the smartest people uh, I, I've ever met. And so thank you, S. Um, so I do the same thing. And that's why I put this question in the podcast. We're going to like, I, you know, we talked about mortality the other week and we got into like deep philosophical things. I also want to say that just from a pure mechanics point of view, it's really weird and really sucks and really scary. I don't think we highlighted enough of the fear behind yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We kind of talked about it on like this philosophical level. And I was like, it's actually scary as shit. And as we if should, we like, knew anything. And we should validate other people who feel the exact yeah, same yeah. way. So I, I can't sleep with something against my heart. So like I feel my heartbeat. I never really connected it to mortality, but I guess I do because like it makes me think 
of my own like pulsing like fragility under the surface at all times. Actually, you say the same thing about the heart rate monitor too. You've you said it's the excess yeah. is why you can't wear the heart rate monitor. You're like, I think about my mortality too much when I when I see my heart rate beating on a on a Garmin screen. Yeah, which so, I think is fascinating. I mean, death makes me incredibly scared and incredibly sad at the same time. I think it, it makes me scared and sad as well. And I also have this like very weird fearful mechanism about what's going to happen to the people I leave behind. Oh, yeah. Is that I mean it's so classic as I've talked about That's before beautiful. of like letting people down. But I feel like the same exact way with death. I'm like, but what if I die before you, David? Like, what are you going to do? What's Addy going to do? Like, how is this going to make you, me feel? And like, I like go through endless amounts of time thinking about that. Megan, I am guaranteed to go first. I haven't <laughs> seen a doctor in like six years. We're going to change that. I'm already on borrowed time over here. Um, but thank you. Yeah. And so what, what I wanted to say to listener S is I think the good place, the show discuss these questions better than maybe anything in history, because it is the ultimate philosophy show. Like the writers were, were working directly with philosophers and um, priests and other things. Um, and it was all talking about how we're all fucking horrified of death. I love this quote from, we love the good place. This, this quote says, vacations are only special because they end. And it's so true if yeah. you think about it. Actually, it makes me think, so uh, Pete Holmes on his podcast is talking about the idea of the never ending orgasm, which sounds like an amazing idea. I'd be like, yes, I am. <laughs> but when you actually think about the logistics of that, just like never ending vacation, it actually sounds terrible. It'd be torture. It'd be, like, it'd be absolutely torture. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of what I think the quest for immortality is at least in the context of people that are trying to give themselves comfort, like perhaps the good place writers. And so the ultimate thesis of the good place was said in the first season by Eleanor. Every human is a little bit sad all the time because you know, you're going to die, but that knowledge is what gives life meaning. Um, and so that little bit of sadness that we're carrying around all the time can be tamped down. But then there are moments where you're sitting in bed and your heart's beating and you're like, this is all temporary or your loved one is having and it, you know, is perhaps dying or you lose a pet or whatever causes that grief cycle that can launch all humans into this existential crisis that like happened in that show. And what I think is really interesting, yeah, about The Good Place is that like, you know, they finally got to the real heaven and everyone there was a happiness zombie. Yeah. And it was just like the Good Place community just gave up in that moment. Yeah. So once you have everything you'd ever want for eternity, it becomes the never ending orgasm, as Pete Holmes said. Um, and so Jason, the kind of the sim more simple character in the show is like, hey, guys, I'm back. Go-karting with monkeys got boring really fast. Um, so once all of our needs and wants are ever ever satisfied, you know the, the writers were saying that that's when whatever we are finding meaning, whatever fear we have about death might actually start to go away. So in the show, Michael, who's like one of the, the creators, the architects, um, he created a door so that people could leave when they are fully ready to end existence entirely. So, you know, the, the good place, heaven, or whatever you want to call this nirvana type location, if you have different... Um, belief systems um, was itself a temporary stop because it had to be. Otherwise, it became hell for everyone involved. Um, and I thought that was really beautiful. And they talk a lot in this show about time. It actually yeah. made me think about today my treadmill realization of time and the idea. So, this is a quote This is what we've been looking for since the day we met time. That's what the good place really is. It's not even a place, really. It's just having enough time with the people you love. And yeah. I mean, that's life. Wow. So maybe the good place is the treadmill. Yes. Two treadmills side by side. side. And with a little one for Addy. I was thinking about that this morning. I was like, we need to do this together. Yeah. Both with pictures. We can have respective pictures so we can lean forward on the treadmill. <laughs> I love it. And maybe like a cake that we're constantly running towards with like little bites out of it. I like just move our head forward like we're gerbils. Um, <laughs> and so to the coda on it to, you know, that first season thesis that I mentioned, the, the, discussion that maybe wrapped up the whole thing was, so Janet, the omniscient, like robot, like creature said this, what do you think happens when people walk through that door? It's the only thing in the universe I don't know. And Eleanor speculated also, 
I don't know either. The wave returns to the ocean. What the ocean does with the water after that is anyone's guess. But as a very wise, not robot once told me, the true joy is in the mystery. So it gets back to the mystery. And so when you feel that heartbeat, when you're scared, we're all sharing that mystery. And just, I want I want everyone to know that we are right alongside you in being fucking horrified. And so hopefully with that, you know, while we're wandering through the really dark abyss together, we can all just light a little light, little, uh, you know, gerbil sized matchstick and just say, hey, I love you all. Just stroke each other's shoulders as we're reading Obama. <laughs> yeah. Metaphorically, because I don't, we love our podcast <laughs> listeners, but we don't need to be that close to our podcast <laughs> listeners. And so final quote, I am returning my damn essence to the damn fabric of the damn universe. Um, and that's kind of what signing off on a podcast is also like. We are returning our essence to the uh, ether that is the podcast land. So thank you all. We love you. With a whole lot of love. Rate, subscribe, review, whatever you do to podcast. Share it too, because we need those podcast uh, podcast reviews after what happened last week. You all are the best. Woohoo! Bye.